welcome, welcome. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, those of you who are just joining us uh, for the first time or as guests, welcome. Uh, those of you who are joining us online, welcome. Uh, my name's Steve Cunningham. I get to be the, the lead pastor here at Wellhouse. It's truly a blessing. Uh, I will tell you, uh, I, I get to serve alongside of a lot of wonderful people here at Wellhouse. Uh, not just the staff, although they're wonderful people too, uh, but also our, our leadership, our shepherding group, uh, wonderful people. I'm always amazed by the ways that they, they're, they're just continually reaching out and, and serving people and loving people, and I love that about them. Our, our lead team, who is so diligent and looking out after our church and, and really asking the questions of, are we doing what God has called us to do right here and now? And I love that. We have so many people who volunteer uh, to do stuff all the time, whether it's serving in kids' classes, which is going on right now, uh, or showing up to set up the chairs that you're sitting in. Uh, I love it. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. And so I count it a, a blessing, a true privilege to, uh, to be able to serve alongside of so many wonderful people. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we started a series called Remodeled, and if you weren't here for that, or maybe if you have, uh, you know, short-term memory issues, uh, I'll, I'll kind of uh, go back through, yeah, some of you are like, yeah, I'm there, okay, uh, then I'm going to go back through just really quickly and highlight a couple of things that I think might catch you up on uh, where we are in this series called Remodeled. We're looking at deconstruction, doubt, and Jesus. And we're asking some tough questions and we're wrestling through some things that I think sometimes we tend to ignore, we tend to not talk about, but they cause big, uh, big issues in our faith. And oftentimes we wind up seeing people walk away from faith entirely because we're not willing to walk in the deep with them. And so we want to do that through this series. We want to be a church that is willing to wrestle through deep things uh, with each other. So we started talking about this idea of deconstruction. And, and really what we said is that reconstruction, and that's a term that I've, I've used instead of deconstruction, but reconstruction is a normal and necessary part of growth. Uh, reconstruction is a normal, necessary part of growth. We know it to be true in all areas of life, right? You, you aren't the same person you were when you were two. You've gone through some changes in your life, right? Uh, you've kind of restructured things. If you've lived in your house for any length of time, you've probably kind of remodeled or restructured some of that to, to better fit your needs. That's just a normal, natural part of life. In fact, that's a part of growth. And that's important. The second thing we talked about is this, is that healthy deconstruction is focused on growth. Healthy deconstruction is focused on growth. Now, if your deconstruction looks like, let's just wipe it all away, you know, swat it clean, and then start from there, that leads to uh, spiritual homelessness. And homelessness is not a good place to be. However, as we look at deconstructing or reconstructing our faith, the idea, kind of like the, the game Jenga, right, is to look at the places that are weak, identify those, and then focus on growth. 
And that's really what we want to do in our faith. Because all of us in our life, in our spiritual walk, have some areas that are weak. There are some areas that maybe that we were taught something that wasn't quite right. There was some truth in it, but there were some things that weren't quite right in it. And maybe there's some things that we developed over time in our, in our faith that we added to that that need to be removed or adjusted in a healthier way. But ideally, healthy deconstruction is focused on growth. And last week, we, uh, we waded in really deep with this thought process of, why, why do bad things, right, happen to good people? Why, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there injustice? And if you weren't here, I, I don't want uh, to try to summarize such a heavy topic, but I do want to say this, that if you are there, the, what we ended with last week is a good place for you to start, and that is this, that God loves, accepts, and welcomes those with serious doubts. That's all of his followers, okay? So uh, if you go, you know, to your employer and you say, you know, I really question what's going on here, and I have some serious doubts about the, the mission and vision of what's happening here, you might be looking for a job later that afternoon, right? If you go up to, uh, you know, your, your, the, 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 the gal you're dating or maybe getting ready to be in, engaged with, and you're like, you know, when I think about our future here, I have some serious doubts and questions, that, that might be the thing that ends that relationship, right? God, I think, is maybe the only person who actually welcomes those. In fact, what's really interesting, one of, my, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, Matthew chapter 28, as Jesus gets ready to commission his disciples, right? He's already died. He's rose again. He calls them together, and he's getting ready to instruct them on what to do next. They gather together, and it says they worshiped him and some of them doubted. And I love that because that seems like it's pretty reflective of me a lot. I, I love to worship God. I, I, I feel like a lot of, uh, I feel like what he says is true. And then there's some times where I'm like, man, I don't know. I don't understand. I don't get what's going on here. There are times where it just doesn't always make sense to me. And God takes those people and he says, all right, I know you got your doubts. I know, I know that sometimes worship and doubting goes hand in hand, but you're ready. You're ready for the next step of following me. Today, uh, in fact, uh, we're talking about that same idea of following, and I, I titled the sermon, I'm Not Following You. Uh, and I want to start with this, this thought of uh, how many of you are parents, have been parents, or have been around kids at a very young age for quite a while? There you go. So you're going to understand what I'm getting ready to talk about. There was a time in almost all of our kids' lives, my, my children's lives, I have six of them, where I know this is going to sound weird because you see me and you're like, well, that guy's odd. Um, but there's a time where they thought I was like Superman. They wanted to be just like me. And that was awesome. And I loved every second of it. Because uh, no, nobody else feels that way, right? I mean, everybody else is like, yeah, Steve's okay. Um, I don't know if I want to be just like him. Uh, 
But there's nothing, there's nothing cooler than that when you're a parent. And sometimes they kind of get in the way, right? If you're out in the, and you're working on stuff in the garage and they, and they want to be right there, they want to be, you know, having the tools right there with you. Or if you're vacuuming, they want to vacuum with you and, and they might get in the way, but, but it's kind of nice because they want to be with you because they think you hung the moon. And then something switches <laughs> and suddenly... You don't know what you're doing anymore. Suddenly, you have no good answers to life. You've been there before, right? Two of us. Okay. Uh, well, get ready. You're in for a wild ride. <laughs> uh, it will happen, right? There comes a time where all of a sudden your kids go from idealizing you or seeing you in all the best light to seeing you in all the worst light. And this phase generally happens at about 11 or 12 years old to usually about 13 to 14. Somewhere in that time gap, there's, there's something called the de-idealization, uh, ideal, sorry, hold on, it's going to come to me, the, the de-idealization, there we go, of parents. And what happens through that process is that our kids learn we're not perfect. They learn that you and I make mistakes. They learn that you and I don't have all the answers to life. They learn that we are inconsistent with what we say and what we do. And they think to themselves, well, if that's true, that might be true about a whole lot more than what I even know about. And all of a sudden, we get pushback. I want to take that idea and I want to apply it to what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks together in deconstructing our faith because I think this, again, is another kind of big piece and a foundational point for a, for a lot of folks um, as they look at their faith and they struggle through, uh, what do I do with this when this part doesn't make any sense to me at all any longer? And that brick looks like the disillusionment of church leaders. It seems like an odd thing for a church leader to talk about, but I think it's really important. I remember growing up in church, and I don't want to associate names with this because I don't think that's fair, and I'm still really close, and I love this family a lot, but the church that I grew up in, I had a really... A uh, great friend of mine, his dad worked for the church. He was a counselor. He was on staff as a minister. And the whole time while he worked for us over the course of, I think it was about nine years, he was having affairs with different women in the church. And there were people who periodically brought that up. And they would raise issues with our leadership. And in their eyes, the leadership didn't do anything about it. But in the leadership's eyes, they weren't sure what to do about it. They didn't know who to believe because when they confronted him, he said, no, absolutely, that's not true. But eventually the truth broke out. It broke out in such a nasty way that it left the church devastated. It left my best friend's family completely devastated. And there were a ton of people that walked away, not from our church, but from their faith. Because somebody who they had put so much merit in wound up falling so far from faith 
that it seemed like it shook the foundation of theirs. Disillusionment of church leaders, let me define that for you. It's Disillusionment is the feeling of disappointment resulting from the discovery that something is not as good as one had believed. That's disillusionment. Let me read it to you one more time. The feeling of disappointment resulting from the discovery that something is not as good as one believed it to be. Now what I'm going to say over the next little bit may ruffle your feathers just a little bit and that's okay. I'm not a fast runner, but I know where I parked my car. I'll make it there. Um, But I want you to hang with me because I think we're going to end on the same page. But I want to open your eyes to something that I think uh, at the beginning, if we don't get this right, again, if we don't get this piece right, when something like that happens, and listen, it happens all the time. You've seen it in the news. You've heard of it, right? And and just in the last few years, how many church leaders have been caught up in in things like not only uh, adultery or affairs, they've been caught, they've actually wiped the slate clean for themselves. They no longer believe. And all of a sudden, it does something to our faith. And so I think if we get this piece wrong, we jeopardize our own faith. Here's what I want to say, and then I want to expound on this a little bit. Underdeveloped faith make accusations of others' flaws while making excuses for our own. Now, this is true in all of life, Right? How many times have, have you judged something uh, for somebody else's actions, right? You judged them on their actions. You did such and such. Well, you judge yourself on your intentions, right? Well, I know it came out that way, but that's not how I meant it. Well, I know that's what I did, but, but my intention was good, right? Our underdeveloped faith makes accusations of others' flaws while making excuses for our own. Several years ago, there was a poll that was taken uh, among non-church, non-believers. And there were 10 kind of overall themes that would happen uh, that that kind of came out of that. And one of the themes of of these non-church going, non-believing people, one of the most common themes in that was Uh, that they did not go to church because the church was full of hypocrites. How many of you would agree with that? Okay. I'm I'm going to try to change your mind. Okay? I think we have gotten the definition of hypocrite wrong. Hypocrite uh, comes from a Greek word, uh, uh, hypocrites, which really means actor. Uh, that's what a hypocrite is. They act like something they are not. Okay? Uh, so that's what we understand a hypocrite to be. I don't believe we have a hypocrite problem, although I think that might be true in some cases. I believe we have a sin problem. And that's very different. See, hypocrisy is a sin. It's a part of sinning. But churches aren't full of hypocrites. I don't think that you go out and tell your friends, I live a perfect life. I have no problems at all. I never make any mistakes. I don't believe that's probably true about you. 
I hope that's not true about you. I know that's not true about me. I try to tell you all the time I'm not perfect. Talk to my family. <laughs> what I believe is that we have, you and I, we have sin problems. And the problem with sin is that I can't fix it on my own. You figured that out about you too. Paul actually wrote about this. In one, of the, one of my favorite uh, uh, chapters that he writes in Romans where he says, listen, I want to do good, but I can't seem to carry it out. I know the good things to do, but I can't seem to do them. Who's going to save me from the wretched person that I am? Thanks be to Jesus. See, we have a sin problem. Now, that does not discredit us and say, all right, well, listen, we can do whatever we want because we have a sin problem. No, 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 no. I think definition helps us. Because we may not be hypocrites. We may be sinners. And I think we have to acknowledge that we, gathering here today, are nothing more than a group of sinners. In fact... Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that includes church leaders. And that's hard to wrestle through. And before you say, all right, listen, Steve, uh, but I know that there's scripture in the Bible. I mean, I know where it is, but I know there's scripture in the Bible that says, listen, church leaders are held to a higher standard. We need to hold them to a higher standard. And what I would say is, yeah, the Bible doesn't say that's your job. And thankfully, it's not. Now, that's Jesus's job. And that's scary. If you're called to, to work in a leadership role with a church, I'm not answerable to you. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way. I mean that in a really humble and scary way. Because if I was just answerable to you, then my job is to make you happy. And that seems like we all win. But my job is answerable to Jesus. And that means that sometimes we have to talk about difficult things that neither one of us really like to do or talk about because it points out the error of our ways. It points out the error of my ways. But because I have to be answerable to Jesus, then I have to point those things out, even when it's uncomfortable. You got me? And that's dangerous. Having said that, there is a piece of us that should be diligent in who we look at as church leaders. And we, we have to make wise decisions when we choose to look at somebody or listen to someone or follow someone as they teach us or train us or shepherd us in the ways of God. And listen, I will tell you this. The harshest tones that Jesus has with anyone in the Bible are always directed at those who are the religious elite. Turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 11. See, I told you I might have to run for the door later. But don't worry, we're going to get there together, okay? Luke chapter 11, verse 37. We're going to start there in just a minute, but... Again, I want us to go back to this framework of understanding us. 
that sometimes religious leaders, now again, you may come up on somebody who says, you know, I got it all perfect. Listen to me. I've got it all worked out. Uh, and that may be true. And, and if you find that person here at Wellhouse, let me know. Because I want to have a talk with them. Because what our DNA, you, you, some of you who have been here from the start, you know what it is. We are a group of imperfect people who are loved by and survey. See, there's only one perfect there, right? And that includes me. And here's what I don't want you to do as a foundation of your faith. I don't want you to ever look at me or one of the leaders at Wellhouse and think, man, they're perfect. They got it all together. They must not sin because I can tell you, as a matter of fact, that's just simply not true. There's going to come a time where you become uh, deeply disgruntled with, with a decision I make or something I do. I'm going to let you down. It's true of everybody in here. So looking at through the lens of we are all imperfect people who sin. And we may not all be hypocrites. I got it all together. But we are truly all sinners. Luke 11, starting in verse 37, this is what it says. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee, a Pharisee was somebody who uh, was the religious elite at the time. Their goal, their idea was, hey, let's, let's help the, the nation of Israel, God's people, uh, follow his rules as best we possibly can because then he'll redeem us. So they had good intentions from the start. It just went south real quick. A Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not uh, first wash before the meal. Now, this was not, uh, we tell our kids every dinner, you know, all right, it's time to eat, come wash your hands. That's, that's like standard speech in our house, right? And it, it has to do with, we just don't want your grubby hands touching all the food that we're about to eat, right? That's, that's the rule in our house. That was not what he was talking about. It wasn't a cleanliness issue. It was a religious issue. And this religious issue wasn't from God. This religious issue was uh, instituted by man, and here, the Pharisee is surprised. Jesus doesn't make a big scene about it. He just doesn't do it. So then Jesus says to him, Now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but on the inside, you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside of you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. What is Jesus saying? Okay, listen, you want to talk about cleanliness. You're concerned about me washing before a meal. Can I talk to you about your cleanliness? It's almost as if you would prefer to take a cup and you wipe down the outside, but on the inside it's grimy and filled with gross stuff, but you're okay with that. I remember as a parent, and I'm sure those of you who went through the sippy cup years, you had the same trauma, right? You already know. See? You already get it. That's, that's what the beautiful thing about parenting, right? You don't even have to say it. You just intrinsically know. One of our kids had a thing of milk. Yeah, it was bad. In a sippy cup. It got lost in the bottom of, of the toy chest. I don't know how long it was there, but I remember smelling this really foul smell. 
and I could not figure it out. So one day I just started ransacking the rooms. You know, it's got to be a dead animal somewhere. I mean, I'm not sure what's going on. And I finally found this sippy cup and I made the terrible mistake of opening it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? If I had done this, let me wash the outside and then let me pour you another glass of milk and you go after it. See, we would never do that. And Jesus says, hey, listen, Pharisees, you're real concerned about what happens on the outside, but you seemingly have no concern about what's going on on the inside. Verse 42, woe to you Pharisees because you give God a tenth of your mint and rue and other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and love and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Let me stop right there for a minute and, and kind of point something out to you. Now this is, this is crucial. Jesus doesn't say, don't do the former, do the latter. Right? He doesn't say, okay, stop, stop uh, giving the tenth, stop tithing, and, and focus on this. He says, those things are elementary to following. Side note, apparently Christ thinks that giving is elementary. And he says, no, 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 you got to go deeper than that. You've got to go into what I've called you to do. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and, and uh, respectful greetings in the marketplace. You love to be seen. You love to be the person who everybody greets. You love it when people call you out and see you as a, a mover and a shaker. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. You remember the, the term whitewashed tombs? Whitewashed tombs happened because in the Jewish culture, if you were around a tomb, you became unclean. And that wasn't good, especially around festival times. If you wanted to participate in a festival, you couldn't be unclean. That was important. Well, what would happen is that here we would go to a cemetery. We say, all right, that's where, you know, we, we would, you know, take a body after its death. But there, they didn't have the same kinds of things. They might bury them in different fields and open places and things like that. So to designate a tomb, they would take a whitewash and they would wash over the place where, uh, where a deceased person was. And that would mark the area saying, all right, dead person here, avoid it. And what Jesus is saying is, you're like a tomb that hasn't been whitewashed. What does that mean? It means that as people come into contact with you, you make them unclean. And they don't even know it. Just by being around you and your teaching, they're unaware of the way that you're slowly killing their faith. And you think, wow, that is some pretty harsh words from Jesus. To which, and this is one of my favorite verses because it's hilarious, one of the experts in the law answers him, teacher, when you say those things, you insult us also. 
hey, Jesus, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the last little rant you went on, you kind of offended us. I mean, you acted as though we were making some mistakes along the way, and that was, I don't know, that's not kosher. Some of you got that joke, by the way. There you go. I threw that out for you. And Jesus, remember who he was talking to before? Do you remember? Pharisees. Who spoke up and said, hey, I don't know if you know this, but when you're talking about the Pharisees, you're also offending us. Who did that? Come on, stick with me. The expert in the law, they're different people, all right? They're both religious elite. And so he says, okay, Jesus, you're kind of treading on thin ice here because I know you're really attacking the Pharisees, but I don't want you to indict us too. Could you draw a better distinction? To which it gets a little funnier and a little more serious. Because Jesus says, oh, and you experts of the law. To which he thought, oh, great. I should have just kept my big mouth shut. Woe to you. Because you load people down with burdens that they can hardly carry. And you yourself will not lift one finger to help them. He says, oh, man, you love to make rules. But you don't care how they impact people. And you wouldn't help them out along the way even if you could. Woe to you because you built the tombs of the prophets and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify and approve of what your ancestors did, that they killed the prophets and you built the tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some who they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood, uh, blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts of the law. Because you have taken away the key of, uh, to knowledge, you yourselves have not entered it, and you've hindered those who were entering it. And he says, listen, you, your, your, your parents, your, the former generation killed the prophets. And they said, no, 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 these people are not from God. And now what you want to say is, oh, we're honoring the prophets, but here I am before you, and guess what? You're about to kill me too. It seems like you're only okay with it in theory, not in practice. And oh, by the way, you don't even have the key of knowledge. And if there was somebody who was trying to figure it out, you'd bumble that up too. Harsh words. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teacher of the law began to oppose him fiercely and besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something that he might say. Would you say they're a bit defensive now? See, these are unhealthy leaders. And you might say to yourself, Steve, it sounds like you gave yourself an out. It sounds like you're saying, well, just trust the leaders that are there. They're held responsible by God, and we just kind of leave that alone, and that's not at all what I'm telling you. And what I want to say to you is this. If you've been under an unhealthy uh, leadership before, I'm sorry. I truly am. I hate that. I've been there too. But what I want to remind you too is that we're people. They're people. 
And sometimes, even good people make some horrible choices. And they sin and they fall short. And you don't have to leave yourself under the guidance and care of an unhealthy spiritual leader. If you see that somebody is caught in sin, you don't have to be there. And Jesus points this out. He's quick to point out, as he often does, that there are people who are unhealthy spiritual leaders. And that's what he does with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law here. And so I think it's helpful for us to distinguish between a healthy and an unhealthy leader. And I feel like I could go on for a long time trying to hash out what that looks like. But I just want to give you a couple of thoughts as we look at this today. The first one is this. An unhealthy leader prioritizes preferences over people. This is what happens through this whole section of Scripture that Jesus points out over and over again. Oh, it's really easy for you to, to tithe all these uh, mints and herbs and stuff. But when it comes to justice, when it comes to loving people, that's not your preference and you won't do it. Oh, you love burdening people with rules, but you don't love helping them. Jesus would say, I think an unhealthy leader prioritizes preferences over people. You've seen that before, haven't you? It's hard to be in a place and it makes you question a lot of things in your faith when you come across that. The second thing is this, an unhealthy leader will leverage their position for their own benefit. This is true of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You notice how when they taught and the things that they instituted somehow always benefited them at the curse of everybody else. This is true. But this isn't the way that God teaches leadership. And so here's what I want you to do. And I really want you to take this home and I want you to wrestle through it. Because I'm not claiming to be perfect and I'm not claiming that over our leadership here, that we're perfect in any way. But I think it's important for you to look at what healthy church leadership looks like. But it starts not here. <laughs> this is an unhealthy uh, look at leadership. It actually starts in Matthew chapter 20. So flip on over to Matthew chapter 20 real quick as we kind of close out some thoughts together today. Here's what happens Jesus is kind of getting ready to really end his earthly uh, um, kingdom, or, or his life, I should say. Not his kingdom, that's important. That's not what ended. Uh, his life on earth. And uh, in doing so, it's really ramping up. There's a lot more followers. There's a lot more miracles. There's a, there's a lot of things happening. And like any good Jewish mother, uh, Jewish mothers... Most mothers, they're good at meddling in their kids' stuff, right? They want them to be successful. And uh, so the, the mother of James and John uh, says, hey, listen, I know that you got some followers here, but would you do this for me, Jesus? When you come into your kingdom, would, would you allow one to sit at your right and the other sit at your left? Well, this causes a debate. And all of a sudden, 
the disciples are like, no, 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 wait a minute. If, if that happened, I would, like, I would like a shot at it too. So Jesus has to talk to them about what it means to lead in his kingdom. And so after this fight breaks out, Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 25, says this, Jesus calls them together. They're all arguing about who's going to be the greatest, who's going to have the most power. And he says this, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them? Pause. What is he saying? You know the way the world works. You know, like how you finally, like you, you start off as a janitor and then you finally work your way up and you got an office and, and then all of a sudden, you know, you think to yourself, man, when I get to be a manager one day, I'm changing things around here. He says, you know how it is when people look at the position of authority and they say, all right, listen, when I'm in charge, I make the rules and what I say goes and I want it my way. You know how that works in life? And all the disciples say, yeah, I know. That's why I want to be on your right and left. Not so with you. What? No, 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 not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And they say, well, that's not fair. That's not right. I, I want to work so hard to get a position of power just, just to give it all away. And he says, oh, hold on. Before you start to say that, think about this. For the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, I'm setting an example for you that you would do as I have done. See, a healthy leader isn't perfect, but a healthy leader is committed to growing never forget, I sat in a, uh, a, a leadership meeting one time, and we were passing out books that we were going to study together, um, and we kind of had this old cantankerous elder on our uh, eldering team, and I handed him a book uh, that we were all going to read together, and he did, as soon as I handed it this way, his arms went like this. And, uh, and I said, uh, you're you, you not going to take the book? And he said, well, if Jesus didn't write it, then I ain't reading it. And I said, well, the only thing that Jesus wrote was in the dirt, and that's probably long gone by now. <laughs> I didn't work there very long, by the way. I mean, as you can tell, I have a way with words. Um <laughs> Uh, see, the only way for you and I to grow is to surround ourselves with people who are growing in their faith and encouraging us to grow in our faith. And here's the mistake I think we make sometimes is surrounding ourselves with people who are content in their faith. And they no longer sense a need to grow. And I think that's dangerous for you and I. And so I think one of the best things that we can look for in a healthy Christian leader is somebody who isn't perfect, but who is committed to growing on their own. 
They're saying, hey, listen, I'm not perfect in this area, but I've not given up yet. And God's still working on me in these areas. And I need you to know that. And oddly enough, through that, isn't that encouraging for you to grow? Doesn't that give you hope over time that, listen, there might be an area in your life that you've tried really hard and you're not there yet either, but that you can work on that together. The second thing is this, and Jesus points it out in this section, is that a healthy leader will leverage what they have for the benefit of others. And I love this. And sometimes it's not the treasure chest of, of goodies either. They'll leverage their hurt. They'll leverage their past pain. They're not afraid to open up the box that has, that has the mistakes and the sin and, and the triumphs too. And they'll share those with you. They'll leverage what they have for you. See, that's what a healthy leader is. And that's exactly what Jesus did for you. He leveraged everything that he had underneath his power for your benefit. And he encourages his followers to do the same. The word disillusionment, I know you're like, why did you pull out your phone? That was weird. Did you get a text? I did not. I saw this quote in a book. It was after I did the, uh, the sermon for the week, and I didn't want to forget it. I want to read it to you. But disillusionment almost always has its root in an illusion. Think about that for a moment. And you have to question as we look at this section of block, was the illusion that you thought that person was perfect? And all of a sudden when you found out that they weren't, that everything came crashing down? Maybe that's true. Maybe the illusion was that somebody told you they were perfect. And when they weren't, it all came crashing down. I... I didn't think I would be quoting you today from Bob Marley, but here we go. <laughs> Bob Marley quote, The truth is, everyone's going to hurt you. But you've got to find the one we're suffering for. See, here's what I know, is that eventually... I will let you down. Eventually, a shepherd here may let you down. And you'll go to another church, another place, and it'll seem perfect, the illusions. And then you realize they're real people and they'll let you down. Don't ever put your brick in the thought that there's a leader who's got it all right. But there is one worth suffering for and he laid it all down for you he's the only one qualified to lead his church see I'm just here using the gift I have and you're here using the gift you have and we're all serving one God together and through each other is his church and he's redeeming the world through you and I through broken people struggling and growing and continuing to try to shine him in our world.
So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. To him who is able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with tremendous joy. May you be swept away in God's love for you and transformed through the Holy Spirit's power within you. Thanks be to the only God, our Savior, who is unparalleled and unchanging, who is matchless and merciful, who is supreme and sufficient, who is before all things, through all things, and in all things, both now and forever. Amen.